Good morning. We're glad that you're here to worship with us at Rivermont. Before we turn to our scriptures, I want to make note of one more announcement that's in your bulletin. You'll see there uh, on the announcements page a discussion about a Reformation tour that's happening in June of 2017. 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and we're inviting you guys as a church to come on a Reformation tour of Germany and Switzerland visiting the Reformation sites in Germany and also Geneva. I'm going to be teaching some of the Bible lessons, and Doug Mann, a history professor at Liberty, is going to be teaching some of the historical importance of the sites we visit. Bruce Bell is helping lead this group, and he's going to hold an information meeting on Sunday the 25th. That's Reformation Sunday at 6 o'clock in the John Knox room. If any of you are interested in that tour, come join us and find out some information about joining us in Germany and Switzerland. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Luke 23. We're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at verses 13 to 25 today as we, uh, uh, following the trial of Jesus, we turn to the announcement. The announcement of the verdict today that Jesus is innocent and yet he's going to be executed anyway. This occasion is a trial of Jesus before Pilate, but in reality, it was Pilate who was being tried. What's he going to do with this Jesus? The same question comes to you and me. What will we do with Jesus? Luke 23, beginning in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! The third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your great power, your power of light and love and the spirit, that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us today and enable us to follow after you. In Jesus' strong name, amen. How many of you remember the game show, To Tell the Truth? Remember that show? A little bit of TV trivia here. It's only one of a couple of shows that have aired in each of six successive decades, believe it or not. And a new season was filmed this past summer, so you'll get to see it some more later this fall or this winter. But on that show, to tell the truth, there was a panel of four celebrities that sought to identify a central character. This character would have lived an unusual life or had an unusual experience. And this central character was flanked on either side by two imposters. And the game was played by the celebrities asking questions to try and identify which was the real one. The imposters could lie... But the real one was sworn to tell the truth. 
The big reveal would come in a language that's been woven into our cultural vocabulary. You may remember the announcement at the end would say, would the real blank, the real character, please stand up. Here we are with the story of Jesus before Pilate. And there is a trial going on, but it's really not Jesus who's on trial. He is the prisoner, but the real trial, the real sifting is being done of Pilate. It's being done in the crowd. It's even being done of Barabbas. The main question before them all was, will the real one who holds power please stand up? The one who is in charge, the one who has the power to save, please stand up. Several of them thought they had power. The crowds sought to wield it through mob action. Pilate thought he had all the crushing power of Rome at his disposal. Herod was a puppet king who liked to imagine that he had power. But in reality, the one who held power also holds it now. And it's Jesus. Will the one having real power to save please stand up? So let's examine this story through the eyes of these characters and try to discern what they thought they were able to do. The first character we're going to look at is Pilate. Pilate tried to exercise his authority and his power to save through controlling the situation. He wanted to deal with it and dismiss it. Just get by the disruption as quickly as possible so he could maintain the status quo. Well, how do we see that? Well, Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate and we pick up the story in verse 13 where he called all the leaders together and announced that he had questioned Jesus and found no merit to any of their charges, it says in verse 14. And neither had Herod, by the way, verse 15. Remember, they had charged him with being a leader of of a political agenda trying to kick out the Romans and and lead the Jews away in rebellion against Rome. But he was innocent, Pilate said. Three times Pilate pronounced Jesus is innocent. Verse 4, verse 15, and verse 22. He knew the truth. Jesus was innocent of these charges. But then verse 16 follows. So, he's innocent, so I will therefore punish and release him. Again in verse 22. He's innocent, so I'll punish and release him. Well, That's not how it's supposed to go, right? If you're innocent, you're supposed to be freed. But not so with Pilate. Why? Well, two reasons, I think. First of all, Pilate was a skeptic. In John 18, when he was challenged about the truth, Pilate responded there, what is the truth? In other words, the truth is what I make of it. I'm powerful enough to rule. The truth is up to me. So it doesn't really matter if this Jesus is innocent. What does matter is the second aspect of why Pilate did what he did. He was a politician. And as a politician, Pilate's highest aim and his highest goal was to control the situation, to control the masses. The first thing on his mind was to make sure that there was no revolt. And in order to accomplish that, he had to punish an innocent man. So be it. Pilate's attitude was, leave me alone so I can get back to ruling and running my life the way I want to. That was Pilate's plan. But he knew the truth. He even confessed the truth that Jesus is innocent. But that truth was of no benefit to him because he didn't act on it. The truth didn't shape his life. It it seemed like it was a truth of no consequence. What mattered more, Pilate's truth, was comfort and control. Sometimes we know the truth also, but it's of no benefit to us because we'd rather live according to the truth of comfort and control. I read a story this week about Thanksgiving Day, 1941. There was a new aircraft 
uh, radar detecting station put on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. And it was facing the Pacific, so nothing would get in its way of detecting aircraft. The technology was brand new, though, and the soldiers were just learning how to use it on the morning of December 7th, 1941. At 7.02 a.m., two soldiers began to detect blips on this radar screen. They saw more than 50 aircraft approaching them, and when they, when they saw them first, they were 132 miles away. And so the soldiers were curious, and so they called their, their uh, commanding officer, Lieutenant Tyler. He was on duty, and it was only his fourth day on this duty. They talked for a few minutes, and Tyler said, no, no problem, there's, a, there's a, a, a squadron of B-17s coming to land, and that must be what you've seen. Don't worry about it. Just dismiss it. They called back at about 7.20, saying the route was all wrong. If it were these B-17s. And here they are now only 74 miles out. Again, Tyler said, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. They talked until 7.39 when the planes were too close to the base to, to, for the radar to effectively distinguish them from ground interference. Don't worry about it, Tyler said. At 7.55, the bombs began to fall on Pearl Harbor as 353 Japanese planes attacked. You know, it's, it's one thing to know the truth. It's one thing to be told the truth, but it's of no benefit to us if we don't act on it. The truth has consequence. The truth of who Jesus is has consequence for Pilate and for you and for me. Pilate knew the truth of Jesus' innocence, but it didn't benefit him at all because he didn't act on the truth and his life wasn't oriented around the truth. In a sense, Pilate is like the, he's the prototypical modern man. Whatever you say, now, let me alone and let me do what, do what I want. Leave me alone and let me live my life however you want. Whatever you say, whatever truth is fine for you, that's all right. But leave me to live how I want to live. So often we behave like Pilate, saying, Okay, God, whatever you say, but leave me alone and let me do what I want to do. When God's truth doesn't fit our mold for what seems best for us so often, we're apt to dismiss what God calls us to do and do what we would like to do. We do it in our marriages. Men, we read the passages about we love our wives as Christ has loved the church. We say, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, God, but let me get back to my own my pattern of relationship. Let me get back to doing this marriage the way I feel comfortable doing this marriage. When the Lord would call us to something bigger, something more holy. We do it when we think about the promises written in the Scripture that God will provide for us. So often we say, yeah, God, I hear you, you're going to provide, but let me get back to doing it the way I want to do it because it seems to me like my life is pretty much up to me. It's going to be what I make of it. Whenever we hear the truth and know the truth, if it's not acted, if it's not joined to faith, if it's not acted upon, it really isn't of any value to us. Does the truth challenge you and lead you to life change? Does the truth so affect your lives that you build your life around it? Friends, if it is true that Jesus is the powerful and the ruling Son of Man and He's the Son of God, then knowing that truth has consequences for how we live. It changes how we live our lives. His Word lays claim to the way we live. Does it shape you? Does it challenge you? Or would you rather live like Pilate? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But let me get back to doing what I want to do. The second character we see in this story is Barabbas. And he is 
a very interesting character. He also thought that he had the power to save. And you may not understand it. You may not see it at first off. But Barabbas thought that power came through revolution. Freedom came through throwing off the authorities. That's what he was doing in verse 19. This man was guilty of insurrection. That is, he was inciting a rebellion. His plan to get freedom was to blow Judea up. His plan was to get rid of the oppressors, remove the rules, remove that iron fist of Rome, and then we're going to be free. The idea of freedom and release runs all through this passage. In verses 16 to 25, the word release is used five times. And yet, the fomenting of rebellion isn't going to bring the freedom that Barabbas thinks it will. Casting off authority doesn't bring freedom into our lives. Not for Barabbas, not for you and for me either. To say that I will feel free whenever I can live my life however I want is a pipe dream. Why? Because what we want without the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts, what we want is enslaved to sin and rebellion. What we want is already bent towards sin. Our will, our emotion, our minds, our bodies, they're all corrupt, corrupted by sin and rebellion. And we're never going to find freedom by giving ourselves more fully to what already lives inside of us. And that's a corrupt heart. It's crazy to think that if I just follow my heart, then somehow I'll find freedom. It's crazy because your heart and mine are trapped in sin and rebellion. We need the Spirit of God to renew our hearts, to regenerate, give us brand new hearts and change our likes, change our desires. Friends, if we think that I'm going to live my life my way and get rid of these oppressive, killjoy commands of God and then I'll find fulfillment, you're headed for a lifetime of disappointment. When we shake the foundations of the Lord's best for us, what remains is simply shaky ground. It's true for the way that we view sexuality, the way we view commitment in marriage. The Lord's way is best for us. Sexual sin, in whatever way it comes, sexual sin is slavery. It might look like freedom. It might look like just a, just a bit of enjoyment. But friends, sexual sin is slavery. It's true for what we teach our children about how the world works. Jesus says, seek my kingdom first And all else will be added unto you. When we so often live for stuff, seeking God's kingdom second or third or nineteenth, our stuff begins to rule us. Whenever we live for or seek stuff first, it becomes our God. It rules us. It it reigns over us. We're not going to feel free by having more stuff. It's also true for how we go about our work with honor and integrity. We work as under the Lord instead of driving for myself and getting ahead no matter who I have to step on to get there. And thinking that we can throw off the shackles of the truth of the Lord will bring us freedom, it's foolishness. It will never work. Because the problem isn't so much out there in the rules and the authority out there. The problem is in here. We need renewed hearts. We need the Lord to change our loves We need Him to give us freedom on the inside. There's only one in this story who has the power to save. And it's the Lord Jesus. The only one who has the power to save is the one who appears as though He has no power at all. The one who appears as though He has no freedom at all. And yet, He was the only one who was truly free. 
we see in Jesus here? We see that he is demonstrating his power to save through a transformational sacrifice. He brings us freedom to serve. Think of it. Jesus was the one, the only one there who actually had power. What could he have done if he had wanted to? Well, Matthew tells us that when Peter sought to fight spiritual battles with the sword, Jesus rebuked him and said, Peter, I have access to thousands upon thousands of angels. If I need defending, I'm perfectly capable of defending myself. If Jesus needed Pilate thrown down, all he had to do was say the word. He had so much power at his disposal to save his own life, but he didn't. He used his power to save us and not save himself. His power to give his life for us instead of saving his life for himself. That's what we call the atonement. And when we study in the scriptures what the atonement does, what Jesus did for us on the cross, there are several ideas about exactly what happened. They're called theories of the atonement. And one of the first ones is the moral influence theory. It says that the cross teaches us how much God loves us. How much God loves us that he's willing to suffer with us. And it gives our suffering and our pain meaning in this world. And that's, that theory is true as far as it goes. Surely we see a loving God suffering for us and pursuing us on the cross. But there's more to the cross than that. Another theory is the ransom theory. And it says that the evil that captivates this world was defeated on the cross. Jesus issued a cosmic blow to evil itself. So you and I are free from the power of evil that rules and reigns over us. Again, has a lot to teach us about what Jesus has done. But there's more. It's more than simply removing a cosmic evil. And we see that more through what happened here with the exchange of Jesus for Barabbas. There was a substitution that happened here. Barabbas, in verse 19, Luke tells us, was guilty. He deserved condemnation. He deserved punishment. Barabbas was justly incarcerated. Barabbas had actually done what Jesus was accused of having having done. Barabbas actually did start a rebellion. And yet there was a tradition in those days surrounding the Passover. The governor would release one prisoner on Passover as a means of celebrating the release of God's people from their slavery in Egypt. So here Pilate having pronounced three times that Jesus was innocent, Pilate wanted Jesus to be that prisoner that he released. But what does Luke tell us in verse 23? The crowd urged with loud cries that he should be crucified. And in verse 25, Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Think very carefully about what's happening here barabbas was giving a release he was given freedom and jesus took his place although he was innocent barabbas the one who deserved to be punished the one who deserved to be crucified for his guilt he was set free and the one who was innocent and deserved to be set free was crucified that's substitution it's exactly what that is it's substitution now we have no reason to believe that that barabbas trusted jesus for his salvation There's nothing in the scriptures about that. But what we have here is a profound picture of what Jesus has done for you and me as sinners. It's an exchange. The atonement is about substitution. Jesus substituting his life for ours. For to Jesus was given a murderer's charge, a rebel's guilt, and a death sentence. And to Barabbas was given Jesus' safety and innocence. 
They inherited one another's lots. Their lives switched places. Barabbas' guilt was credited to Jesus as if he had done it. And Jesus' freedom was credited to Barabbas as if he had deserved it. And that is, friends, precisely a picture of what happened on the cross. Jesus became our substitute. It was an exchange of his life for our lives. Friends, we are Barabbas in this passage. We stand in the place of Barabbas. So just sit there in his sandals for a moment. You and I are condemned. We, were, we deserve a death sentence. Not just physical death, but eternal death for our sins and our rebellion. And yet Jesus went to the cross to take our place to set us free. The cross, friends, proves that there is nothing that can stand in between God and His people because He has loved and pursued us by removing the sin that separates us. It has been nailed to the cross with the Lord Jesus. He used His power in going to the cross to save us instead of saving Himself. And that's where true freedom comes from. Freedom from our sin, freedom from our slavery to our corrupt nature. It all comes through the cross and the resurrection. By Jesus going to the cross that day, He brought a new power of life into this world. He's given you and me the power to forgive, the power to serve, the power to love in the ways that He's loved us and forgiven us and served us. Friends, when that truth begins to be pressed into our hearts, then we are led to trust and we are led to worship. There is nothing that can separate the love of God from His people. Nothing. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in Galatians 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus for me, Jesus' life traded for ours leads us to celebration, it leads us to joy, it leads us to worship. Because, friends, there is now no condemnation on any who believe. Can you ever doubt your worth in His eyes ever again? Could you ever say to someone else, you aren't worth it? No. Because Jesus traded His life for ours. Trust Him and worship Him. Verse 25 says that Jesus was delivered over to their will. Whose will? Well, here narrowly, it was the will of the bloodthirsty crowd. The will of that perverse set of leaders. It was even to the will of the devil who sought for Jesus' destruction. Think of that for a moment. The devil foolishly thought that he was just about to win. If he could just manage to kill Jesus, then he would win. And yet... The devil's plan to destroy the Son of God was woven into the tapestry of God's plan for your and my salvation. We read about it in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. We're given the the behind-the-scenes view of what was actually happening. Verse 28 of Acts 4 says this, that Herod, Pilate, and the crowds did exactly what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Whose will was at work when Barabbas was traded for Jesus? It was God's will. As the crowds shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Brings us to our knees to know that the father also added his voice. Yes, 
crucify him. Because he will die, my people will live. See, friends, the only one who had the power to save, the power to save you and the power to save me, was the one who was nailed to that tree. The one who went to his death in our place. Friends, don't just hear that truth today. Trust him and worship him. And may your life be built around what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would make us a people who more and more marvel at the cross. Marvel at what you have done for us. A rebellious people. People whose hearts are still filled up to the brim with self-interest, with greed, with lust, with gossip, with idolatry. And yet, Jesus, you stood in our place to pay for all of that guilt. Would you lead us to freedom from that guilt, freedom from the corruption of our lives that we might live as a holy people for you? We thank you that because you gave your life, we can be free. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.